we've been going through this whole year with ups and downs and trials and tribulations and joys and blessings from the Lord. And we started the book of Genesis in January of 2020 at a teen center, a youth center in Glendora. And little did we know the adventure and trial that awaited this year of 2020. Not knowing that COVID would strike there in March, we were a, a, a small church that was, that was growing and God allowed us to learn from the book of Genesis back then how the earth was formed by God himself. The origin of man, the, the creation, Adam and Eve. We learned about how God had this awesome relationship with man and woman and, and then that relationship was severed by sin. Satan tempted the woman and thus began the fall of mankind. And from that moment, before that moment, there was a plan that whole time of redemption, a plan to save us from sin, to give us a new life. Now this plan was promised to that very man and woman, Adam and Eve, that through their seed, a savior would come. And we watched as man would rise up and fall, become depraved in sin, and then God would have grace on Noah. And then the world would be populated, and then God focused on the man Abraham to use him as the forefather of the Israelites who were going to be an example of who God was to the rest of the world. And we saw Abraham's life, how he was a man full of faith, but still not without fault. Still a man at times who left the faith, who doubted, but would return to God, would repent. And through his sons, we began to see Isaac, his promised son, and then Jacob. And we watched Jacob as he was a man who was a, a manipulator and a, and a thief to his brother, to his father, how God got a hold of his life and broke him, wrestled with him in the middle of the night. And when he submitted to the Lord, God changed his name to Israel. And Israel would have 12 sons. And of those 12 sons, he favored Joseph. And Joseph then, because of his favoritism, was sold into slavery. And Joseph went through the pit, went through some of the worst trials that anyone can go through. Being in captivity for 13 years. And then God took him out of captivity. Raised him up to second in command in Egypt. And his brothers who threw him into captivity would then end up having to come to Joseph, their brother, to ask for food. And in this dramatic turn of events, Joseph would reveal himself to his brothers to tell them, to show them that God had all of this planned already. And then their father, Jacob, would be brought to Egypt to meet his son, whom he thought was dead. And then as his father is now an old man living there, near, right there in Goshen, near Egypt, Jacob, Israel, is now passing away. He's at that age, and long and evil were the days of Jacob's life. He told that very thing to Pharaoh. 
But Jacob also said, I've been a sojourner on this journey. And tonight, as we study chapters 49 and 50, we're going to take a look at how Jacob, Israel, would bless his sons. There on his deathbed, he would gather all his sons around him and proclaim blessing to his sons and also curses to those who were disobedient. So I titled my study tonight, The Blessings of Obedience and the Curses of Disobedience. And we're going to look at each of his sons, how some of them were blessed and some of them not so much. So let's now jump into chapter 49, beginning with verse 1. It says, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. So now he's going to proclaim this blessing on his sons. He gathers them all together. And that must have been an intense moment for some of his sons to either be blessed or put on blast right there in front of their whole family. In verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So first son, right off the bat, curse, boom. And it's almost as if he's saying this first to Reuben and then he turns to his other brothers and he says, he went up in my very own bed and slept with one of my wives, his concubine. If you remember in Genesis chapter 35, Reuben slept with one of Jacob's lesser wives, his concubine, Bilhah. We see that in Genesis 35, verse 22. And he told Reuben, he called him unstable as water. See, he was supposed to be this beginning of strength, excellency, dignity, excellence of power. Yet he doubted. He was unstable in his mind. He was unstable like water. The Bible talks about being a double-minded man. In James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, it says, He who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You see, when we're not founded and structured and dependent upon our rock, Jesus, our mind, our heart, it's unstable. And we could be like Reuben, who followed after his flesh, his lustful desires, and went up into his father's couch, defiled it. Because of this, there are consequences. If you look at the history of the Israelites, none of the tribe of Reuben ever did excel in anything. It just wasn't there. Later on, Reuben, he desired to receive his portion and his inheritance, but it really came outside of the land of Israel. He had to venture out for it. Now, let's look at the next brothers in line, Simeon and Levi, verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Oof, now he's taking two out at a time. He's like, bam, ba bam. In verse 6, he's referring to Genesis chapter 34, the, the Dinah and Shechem incident. 
If you remember, they had a younger sister named Dinah who was born right before Joseph and Benjamin. And Dinah, when they were, the family was dwelling near the land of Shechem, she went to go visit the ladies in Shechem. But the prince of Shechem, his very name was Shechem, saw Dinah, took her and raped her. And then in this weird, twisted love, desired to then ask her father for her hand in marriage. And he came to the brothers and Simeon and Levi plotted against Shechem. And they said, yeah, sure, you can marry our sister Dinah, but you must circumcise yourself and your whole town must circumcise themselves in order for Dinah to be married to you. And Shechem agreed and the whole town circumcised themselves. And then after a few days, Levi and Simeon went in and slaughtered the whole city. They took revenge in their own hands and they got revenge for their sister's rape. Now it should have been punished. Shechem should have been punished. But Jacob didn't do anything in the moment and their brother's revenge, it boiled out in sin. In Ephesians chapter four, verse 26 it says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And then again in Romans twelve nineteen, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And this is true. When we're wronged, God needs to be our defense. And God puts judges in our society and, and law and rule that we are to submit to and let the governing authorities take care of what is law. But we need to be angry without sin. And that's not an easy thing to do. Now in verse 7, he pronounces this curse upon Simeon and Levi because of this. Look at verse 7. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. This was fulfilled within the tribes of Simeon and Levi. Simeon had no distinct part of the land in, of Canaan, of Israel, but had their inheritance out of the portion of the tribe of Judah. So some of Judah's land, they would take little bits of cities as part of it, Simeon, but they never had their own big plot. Now, this is what's interesting about the Levites. See, here he pronounces a curse upon Levi and says that they're not going to have any land. Now, what is interesting is that God honors this curse, but he also gives them some grace, the Lord himself. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, God says this about the Levites. He says, The priests, the Levites, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no part nor inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the offerings of the Lord made by fire and his portion. Therefore, they shall have no inheritance among their brethren, the Lord is their inheritance, as he said to them. So God said, look, Levites, your guys aren't going to have any land, but I will be your inheritance. And he made them the priesthood, the men who were to then relay the oracles of God, the prophecies of God, the, the function of the temple was to be used by the Levites to relay that to the people. And I see God's mercy in this, that though they messed up, though they struck out in vengeance, for one reason or another, God had mercy on them and allowed them to then be those ministers in the temple. Let's look at the next brother, verse eight. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be 
on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? Now here, Israel is comparing Judah to a young lion because of his strength, his courage, even his generosity. If you remember, Judah became a spokesman for his younger brother, Benjamin. Even before that, he stepped in a little bit with Joseph and convinced his brothers not to murder Joseph. But then when Benjamin was taken by Joseph, as a, he was about to be taken as a slave, Judah stepped up and said, no, you can't take our brother Benjamin, take me instead. Because he promised his father to protect him. And Judah, we see this strength, this responsibility now taking place throughout his life. Now Judah's prophecy, it's lived out through David's reign and through the Messiah as well. You see, King David would be this man who led the nation of Israel to victory and ultimately the forefather of the Messiah. And this is the beginning of the prophecy of the lion of the tribe of Judah, who we know to be Christ. Now in verse 10, the scepter, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now Shiloh, this indicates the Messiah. That word Shiloh, it comes from the word shalom, meaning peace. And until peace comes, and the peace, this prince of peace, for you know this to be Jesus. I'm so glad that Jesus gives us peace in our life. He is our peace. Remember Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, as he was journeying close to Jerusalem in Luke 19 verses 41 through 42, it reads this, but as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead and he began to weep, how I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. This is what Jesus was for our lives. This is what he was meant for Israel. But his brethren did not receive it. The Israelites didn't receive that peace when he came. Only a few. And the scepter that was prophesied of not departing from Judah, it didn't depart from Judah until Shiloh came. Shiloh was that peace, Jesus. And after Jesus was crucified, 30 years after he was crucified, Jerusalem was overthrown by the Romans, making this prophecy true, to be exact, that the scepter did not depart from Judah until the Christ came. Doesn't that get you excited to see, wow, like this is prophecy and in, in his, history, historically speaking, it lines up perfectly. In verse 11, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Whoa. We have in these few verses a donkey being bound to the vine. I'm reminded of how Jesus said, I, I am the vine and you are the branches. And how Jesus rode in on a donkey to Jerusalem. And then in verse 12, 
His eyes were darker than wine, that, that blood red. His teeth were whiter than milk. What's whiter than white? In Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, when John, the beloved, sees Jesus amongst the seven lampstands, in Revelation 1, 13 and 14, it reads, In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a garment down to his feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. I wonder if Jacob knew these words as he was saying them, what they really were illustrating. How Jesus is going to tread the blood of the grapes, meaning he's going to judge the nations. He's not done with his chosen people, Israel. They will have their eyes opened in the great tribulation. And they will say to the Messiah, who put these scars on your hands? And Jesus will tell them, these scars, these were done in the house of my friends. His very brethren. Now in verse 13, Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. You see, Zebulun was given that area in the northern part of Israel, the portion of which is now Lebanon, but he never took that full portion that was promised to him. A few of the other tribes make the same mistake. In verse 14, Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. And he bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Now Issachar was as strong as this donkey, like an ox, but he was lazy. And thus his characteristics, the tribe of Issachar, was that they were going to be strong, yet they were going to be lazy. And they became a servant to conquering nations as the nations would conquer those that were on the outer portions of Israel. And sometimes you could have so much skill and so much understanding, so much strength, yet because of laziness, because of complacency, we do not follow the call of God in our life to fully use those gifts that he's given us. May that not be so with us tonight, believer. In verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that its rider shall fall backward. Now, Dan would inherit most of the northernmost part of the land of Israel. It was there at the base of Mount Hermon. And Dan was a tough tribe, and they did protect Israel from those attacks that the nations would bring from the north. And now as Jacob is saying all these blessings and curses to his sons, suddenly there's a moment in verse 18 that he breaks away from the blessings and the cursings and proclaims a truth. In verse 18, we read, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Whenever we see O Lord, or L-O-R-D, all capitalized in our Bibles, this is the name Jehovah, the all-becoming one, meaning that God is everything we need. 
Now, here's what's interesting about verse 18. We have the phrase, salvation, O Lord. This is the first time that the word salvation is mentioned in the Bible. Now, when you have this phrase, salvation, and L-O-R-D, we have Jehovah, which is Lord, and then Shua, which is salvation. Jehovah Shua. Now, throughout the Old Testament, there are many names of Jehovah. Jehovah Shua, Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Tesidkanu. And they each have a special meaning. Our peace, God our provider, God our salvation, God our righteousness. And I'm reminded that God is everything we need. And in this case, what is being proclaimed here is Yeshus. So here's what's also interesting about this word. When you have Jehovah, Shua, eventually the J sounds would become the Y sound, so they would get Ye, Yehovah. And then when you shorten that, you have Yeshus, which is that name for Jesus. Because Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is everything we need. Whatever we're going through tonight, whatever trials and obstacles, whatever we're praying for, whatever we desire, we seek, it needs to be found in Jesus. If you need to find yourself, yourself is found in Jesus. If you go try to find yourself outside of Jesus, it's not your purpose-filled life anymore. It's something that's not eternal. So this awesome promise in verse 18 where Jacob is saying, I've waited for your salvation, O Lord. Now in verse 19, Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Now the tribe of Gad, with the Reubenites, they took up an inheritance outside of the land of Israel and they were overcome early on in the fall of the northern tribes of Israel. Yet the prophecy at the end of this is that at the end they shall triumph at last. And in the end they they did overcome. But what this reminds me of with the nations like Gad and like the Reubenites is how when we don't take what God has promised us how we are so susceptible to attacks from the enemy and to not taking the full blessing of God. You see, Gad and Reuben, they didn't take all the land that God promised to them. They stayed back outside of Israel, to the, close to the outskirts of Israel, and they were the first tribes to be attacked by other nations and the first to fall because they didn't have the great support group of the whole other 10 tribes of Israel. And I'm reminded that we need to take that full promise of blessing. We can't just get a little bit of the land and say, okay, you know what, that's enough. I'm good, God. I don't need the other stuff. Like, I'm good with this ministry. I'm good with this calling. Um, I see you're, you're opening doors for me elsewhere and you're calling me to go deeper, but I, I'm, I'm good right here. I'm, I'm just going to settle in this portion That's what Gad and Reuben did. And then when the enemy came, they were the first to be wiped out. Let us not do that, but let us take the full promises that God has given us. Jacob goes on. He says in verse 20, Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. So we have here Asher, who is a baker. And I'm sure his... Dainties were royal. And I think of in Israel how they have all those uh, sweets and, and breads that are, that are baked so delicious that I can't wait to enjoy next year. Now in verse 21, Naphtali, 
is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Now the tribe of Naphtali, according to some Jewish rabbis and what they recorded of the tribe of Naphtali, they would say that they were geniuses, that they were kind and loving, swift and expedient people, that they were, were lovers of liberty and they were well-spoken. They were courteous and they had this use of good address and pleasing languages. And it's interesting to, to just see how God has given us language that can be used in a beautiful way. In verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a well. His branches run over the wall. Now we know of studying Joseph that he was a fruitful person. His sons Ephraim and Manasseh, which would take place really in, of him as the tribes because their father wanted them to, they became fruitful tribes. And not only were they blessed but they were also a blessing to others, as Joseph was with his family. Now, remember, Ephraim and Manasseh would take Joseph's place as tribes' leaders. Now, in verse 23, the archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in his strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong. By the hands of the mighty God of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So this is, again, referring to the life of Joseph, Joseph's trials that he endured throughout his life. The archers shooting at Joseph would have been his, his very brother, selling him into slavery, almost murdering him. But his bow remained in his strength the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. The shepherd is mentioned there, the stone of Israel. You see, throughout Joseph's life, the common theme was that God was with him. Just as God is with you, Christian, God is with you tonight. Whether you're in a season of being blessed, whether you're in a season of being thrown into a pit of desert and just trials, God is with you. Now, there is an interesting parallel between Joseph and Jesus. I wrote down how many things in common that Joseph has with Jesus. You see, Joseph is this picture, actually, of the coming Messiah, in a sense. And maybe if you're taking notes tonight, note these. Both Jesus and Joseph were beloved of the father, of their father. Your father loved both of them. They were both envied and hated. Both Jesus and Joseph foretold that one day he would rule. Joseph told his brothers, one day you guys are going to be bowing down to me both sent by the father to seek the brother's welfare. Remember, Joseph went out to go check on his brothers. Same with Jesus. Both rejected and condemned to die by their very brothers. Both became a servant. And then both resisted temptation. Both Jesus and Joseph were stripped of their clothing both were thrown into a pit. And in Jesus' case, that pit was hell. Both were numbered with the transgressors. And both were promised deliverance to a condemned man. Remember when Joseph promised the butler that he would then be taken out of prison? In that same way, Jesus told the man on the cross who was there with him, that he would be with him in paradise. Both Jesus and Joseph were raised from the pit and then promoted to honor and glory and Jesus to the glory of heaven. 
Now all the people were commanded to bow down to both of them. Both provided for all those who were in need. Jesus, the whole world, and Joseph for those who were in need from the famine. And both were allowed his brothers to suffer a period of tribulation. Whoa. The same way that Joseph tested his brothers as they didn't know who he really was and allowed them to suffer, took Simeon into prison. In that same way, Jesus will allow his brothers to suffer a period of tribulation, what we know to be the great tribulation. But what happens at the end of that? Reconciliation and revelation. The revealing of Joseph to his brothers, the revealing of Christ to his brethren, and the reconciliation of Jesus to his brothers, the Jewish people. You see, we see a picture of Christ throughout the entire Old Testament. Joseph is one of those. And Jacob, his father, knew that there was a goodness to Joseph, so he does bless him greatly. Look at verse 25. By the God of your father who will, bless, who will help you and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills they shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. I see in these verses how much God used his father Jacob to proclaim these blessings. I see how our God is a God of blessing. See, sometimes we think that God is always just a judger, that he's just waiting for us to be falling and messing up when we sin, and then he's ready to judge us. That he's like Santa Claus with his list of naughty and nice. But we need to remember God desires to bless us. See, God doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Because of this, I believe that God is desiring to pour his love out, and we simply need to open ourselves up to receive it, rather than turn away from God and reject his blessing. Jacob continues in verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. And these Benjamites were tough men. They were tough in their tribe. They were one of the toughest tribes of Israel. When there was some civil wars going on amongst some of the, tri the tribes of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin was almost eliminated when all of Israel would come together to attack the Benjamites, and the Benjamites were scarcely able to defeat them. From the tribes of Benjamin, we have men like King Saul. And also we have, from the tribes of Benjamin, the great apostle, Paul. And those both were tough characters. In verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. So there you have the, the blessings of obedience, the curses of disobedience on these 12 men. Look at verse 29. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with me with the field of Ephron, 
the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. In verse 32, the field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So Jacob finally, he tells his sons, look, take me to that cave where I buried Leah, one of my wives, where Abraham and Sarah were buried. And he charges his sons with this charge that they would do this. And look at chapter 50. It says, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. So we do see that father and son relationship, the love that was there. Joseph losing his father and Jacob entering into that place. Abraham's bosom at the time, but looking for the promise. He was just a sojourner, a sojourner in this world who was looking forward to having all those evils made right. He said, long and evil, or actually short and evil, have been the days of my life. And it is true, we do endure evil in this world. But we're just pilgrims. This is not our home. And so in verse 2, And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned him for for 70 days. Now, the embalming processes, it took 40 days, and the period of mourning in Egypt for a great person was 70 days, as we read. And so this was their tradition, the, the methods of the Egyptians. Now, if you could ever find this cave of Machpelah, you wouldn't find the remains of Abraham and Isaac and their wives because they were just dig out this part of the cave and put their bodies in there. Now, however, though, you would find a coffin and the mummified body of Jacob still existing there because of the Egyptian embalming method. The way the embalming of the Egyptians would cause us to this day, like we found King Tut, to find these mummified bodies. And that's actually the same for the body of Joseph. Now, a body you definitely will never find in any tomb would be the body of Christ. See, he was raised out of corruption to incorruption. His body was mortally bruised, but then God resurrected him. And to this day, there was never found the body of Christ. And if you go to Israel this day, you could go inside that tomb and see he's not there. In verse four, now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, my father made me swear, saying, behold, I am dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. Now, in these caves, as I mentioned, they would dig these niches in the walls and they would lay the bodies in the niches of the wall. 
much like the catacombs that are famously known in Rome. Now, Joseph, he swore to Pharaoh that he would come back because the Israelites were now a very important part of the Egyptian culture. They had added much value to the Egyptians with all their their livestock and their agriculture and their trading and their family. So Joseph was telling Pharaoh, look, like we're going to come back. And then verse 7. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the house of Joseph, his brothers and his brother's house. Only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. Now there's no more sure way to let Pharaoh know that he was coming back than by leaving the children behind with the babysitters and ensured them a return and a speedy return. I'm sure by 10 o'clock they're like, where are you at? Verse 9, And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came up to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. So now this great mourning for Jacob, the patriarch, the father of the 12 tribes. And as they would journey to this place where their father asked them to, they actually journeyed uh, to the fleshing floor of a tad around that area beyond the Jordan. There would be much plains and a lot of water and a lot of sources for them to be able to have this journey. Now in verse 11, And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he commanded them. Now, as the people, they saw all this mourning going on, the way in the method of the Egyptians, they thought, man, look at all these Egyptians. Everybody's mourning like in the Egyptian manner. And they probably didn't even realize that it was actually Jacob who they were mourning for, who is a Jew. It says in verse 13, For his sons carried him into the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who went up with him to bury his father. See, there was a special purpose that he needed to go back to the land to be buried. He didn't want to be buried in Egypt because that wasn't the land that God had promised him. The land of Israel was the land God promised him, and that was where he wanted to be buried. Taking that full promise, journeying by faith, a sojourner. You see, tents are temporary dwellings, and they're what sojourners use. Right now, if you were to come to my house, you would see that me and my parents have been sleeping in the kitchen and a lot of our articles that usually go into our living room and bedrooms are outside of our house under plastic for keep right now because they're doing some construction on our house. And I'll be honest, it's kind of hard to sleep in the kitchen sometimes. <laughs> but praise God, he's doing a beautiful work in the home. But I did remember as we were putting our stuff outside under tents and under canopy and for protection, I was reminded of the Israelites and how they journeyed through the wilderness and how they would have to take their belongings and set up camp and how God was with them the whole time 
led them by a cloud to protect them from the sun. And then at night would be this pillar of fire which led them through the dark. And I see God leading us, God leading me, my family. I'm also reminded that on the eternal perspective, this life that we're living, we're just sojourners through this life. This isn't our home. This body of meat, which is perishing day by day, will one day be made incorruptible. In the blink and a twinkling of an eye, we will be given a new body when we enter into that glorious realm where Jesus is, where there's so much love, no more sickness, no more pain, no more sin, but freedom, the relationship with Christ complete. So let us be eternally minded, knowing that what we do in this life echoes into eternity. Let's finish this book of Genesis. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us evil for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. So at this point, his brothers are scared. They're like, man, dad's dead. Joseph is going to come after us now for what we did to him. At the end of verse 17, it says, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. In verse 18, then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. There's a great fear that the brothers had that Joseph would enact vengeance. And this actually made Joseph weep because he realized, man, his own brothers are, are scared of him. They don't know him fully and completely well enough to know that he was a man who trusted in the Lord and was not going to take wrath and vengeance upon them. Look at verse 19. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Joseph had learned the lesson to let God defend you. People are going to do horrible things to us. They're going to say horrible things about us. Especially when you're a Christian. If you're a believer, you're going to have critics. Now you can try to defend yourself and try to stop what the critics are doing. And what I believe it's actually one of Satan's tricks to get us focused off of the work of God, to be focused on defending ourselves. There's a place for apologetics and defense. But I, I believe that God desires to be our protector. He wants us to trust and be dependent upon him, not ourselves. When we fight against these social injustices, when we fight against liberalism and all these different things, we're no longer really proclaiming the power of God and love, the work of God. Let's not fall into the trap of fighting these things that are not eternal but trusting in God. Joseph did. He said, am I in the place of God? In verse 20, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. I would underline verse 20 if I were you, believer. See what evil is meant against us? God means for good. Verse 21, Now therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones as he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. With these words of Joseph, I'm reminded that no weapon that is formed against you 
will prosper. This is the heritage of the children of the Lord. That's Isaiah 54, verse 17. Isaiah 54, verse 17. I'm also reminded of the verse in Romans that says, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Joseph knew this, that God was sovereign. He was in control. Verse 22, so Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Whew. This is 54 years after his father's death. Verse 23, Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the sons of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. You see, Joseph told his brothers to take me back to the land of Israel where my fathers are. So this land of Israel, the love of the land was something that was planted in the Israelites from the beginning, even before they possessed the land because of the promises that God had given them. And God was going to surely visit them and bring them out of the land of Egypt. Joseph promised them because he knew that what God had promised his father, what he promised to Isaac, what he promised to Abraham, and with this, we now see what the Israelites perhaps had forgotten was what God had told their father Abraham, that there was going to be a period that they would dwell in Egypt for 400 years where they would be enslaved. And that's where our story for the book of Exodus when we continue in our studying of the Old Testament, now the attention turns towards the author of the first five books of the Bible, Moses. And how exciting to learn about the man who we've been reading this whole time, his, the author, to learn about his life and how God used him mightily to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt into Israel. So we're not going to actually get in there uh, right away. I want you guys to be now tuning in because over the next couple of weeks before Christmas, I, I do want to take a look at Jesus. I want to take a look at his birth, what it meant for the world. So invite your friends to tune in. Send them to these YouTubes or Facebook videos as we remember why Christ came to this earth. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you to thank you for your love, to thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your blessing, Lord. Help us, Father, to be obedient to you. Help us, Lord, to take that full blessing that you've promised us, Lord. May we, Father, not be men and women of vengeance, but may we, Father, trust in you as our Savior. We thank Jesus for what he has done on the cross. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Use us mightily this week. May we be focused on the call you have for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would desire to grow in your walk and you need just prayer, 
go ahead, feel free to message us. We would love to pray with you personally, to get to know you and to lead you towards Christ. So we'll see you this Sunday. Angels we have heard on high Sweetly singing o'er the plains And the mountains in reply Echoing their joyous strains Gloria In excelsis